Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. New Yorkers, people who live near New York, people who do not mind traveling to New York, I want you to know that on the 29th of June, the Agora Podcast Network and several very talented podcasters are coming to an area near you. The Intelligent Speech Conference is the place you should go if you want to hear from and also meet your favourite podcasters. Mike Duncan is going to be there, as is David Crowther, as is Kevin Stroud. So if that sounds like something you'd be interested in, go to intelligentspeechconference.com and use the code WDF to get 5% off the ticket price, which has been significantly reduced because they found a much better venue than before. The Intelligence Speech Conference is just the beginning of what we hope will be a whole rake of different conferences, where maybe in the future I'll actually be able to go. This time I can't make myself go to New York. However, that doesn't mean you should not go, because it's a great opportunity to meet your fellow podcasters, tell them that you appreciate them, and also enjoy some quality lectures, some presentations, and just the general fun of talking to those podcasters and like-minded fans. 
So what are you waiting for? Head on over to intelligencebeachconference.com and use the code WDF to get 5% off. Otherwise, maybe you're not up for social interaction. Maybe you'd rather do social interaction over the internet, in which case Flick is the app for you. Flick enables you to shun Facebook and Twitter and to go and find the history exactly where you want it. Several times a week we'll be updating our Flick group, which you can find by clicking the link in the description below, and then participate in different discussions with like-minded history friends. I'm all about engagement with my audience, guys, and this is a great way to make engagement happen. But maybe you don't want to talk to anyone at all, in person or over the internet. And maybe you just want to access still more content. Maybe you're a glutton for punishment that way and you just can't get enough of my dulcet tones. If that's the case, head on over to patreon.com forward slash when diplomacy fails and you'll be able to access an hour of extra content every single month. Wouldn't that be nice? Especially because at the moment we're examining the Suez crisis. Something which, let's just say, Britain doesn't come off very well in. Even worse, in fact, than the way it's coming off at the moment. In a kind of strange, surprising way, the Suez crisis has proved strangely contemporary, and I didn't really expect that to happen. I didn't really expect it to be so relevant. But if you're interested in seeing how Anthony Eden managed to mess everything up royally and make Britain more isolated than it had been in ages, then go and check that out. It's the second part of a series I've called 1956, The Eventful Year, and the first part's already uploaded, The Suez Crisis being the second part, which we're nearly winding down, will be finished by the time we get to about August, by which point we'll be starting a new series called Poland Is Not Yet Lost, which examines the history of Poland in the 18th century. How did Poland go from one of the powers of Europe to partitioned out of existence by its rapacious neighbours? Well, I'm going to investigate, and I hope you'll come and join me for that ride. It's going to be a fascinating one, guys, and I hope to see you there. Of course, that is patreon.com forward slash when diplomacy fails. Remember intelligencespeechconference.com. Remember the app Flick for talking to history friends. And remember Patreon, and you'll be doing your bit to make sure that this podcast can keep on going. All these sponsors, all these projects we're engaging in, guys, that is what helps independent podcasters like me do their thing. And because you're so good at supporting us and so patient at withstanding all these plugs, we're able to do what we love and you're able to listen to what you love on a regular basis. So thanks for that, and I hope you enjoy the latest episode. You're listening to the Versailles Anniversary Project, episode 70. Hello and welcome, history friends, patrons all, to episode 70 of the Versailles Anniversary Project. So last time we explored several different issues relating to the United States and its president, Woodrow Wilson. It was a long, winding installment with several layers, as we went back and forth between the historical record and what historians think of the president. In other words, we went between narrative and analysis, to give you as many perspectives on the guy and his policies as possible. 
By now, I think it's fair to say that Woodrow Wilson was a man of selective compromise, in that he held firmly to certain ideas and applied them rigorously when dealing with certain countries. But when dealing with other states, he was strangely willing to give way or ignore altogether the ideals which he had loudly and painfully pursued. This willingness to compromise sometimes and not others had several consequences, but one glaring one was the effective marginalising of Italy. Sure, Vittorio Orlando and Sidney Sonino were back in the conference and in the swing of things by mid-May, but as our examination of the minutes from the 19th of May at least showed, the Big Four had very much become a case of three against one. Perhaps this didn't matter much to Woodrow Wilson, as he didn't necessarily need the Italians to love him, but by failing to satisfy the Italians at home or in the conference, he virtually guaranteed that Vittorio Orlando's government would not survive the summer. By now one could argue without too much effort that Orlando had lost heart when it came to the conference. He had managed Herculean efforts of political strength, such as revitalising his country following the disaster at Caporetto in late 1917, but when faced with the dreary reality of American stubbornness and the tragic betrayal felt by the behaviour of the British and French, it seemed that Orlando could only take so much. It must have been doubly painful for Orlando, because even as it was made plain to him that he couldn't get what he wanted, it was also made plain that the big three had less and less time for him. This was because in the last third of May, in other words the last ten days of that month, the question which seemed to dominate proceedings above all was not what the Italians felt, as had dominated arguably the period between Orlando's exit and return. Instead, the question on the lips of the big three was what Germany's answer would be. Would they say yes, or would they say no to the treaty which had been handed to their foreign minister, Ulrich von brockdorff Ransau on the 7th of May? The Allies had plans in place should the answer be no, and they involved a gleeful amount of military theorising on Ferdinand Foch's part. How quickly could the Allied divisions assemble? How quickly could they move into Germany? How long would it take for the Germans to surrender thereafter and accept the unacceptable? We learned last time that Lloyd George had approved of a scheme which would begin the timetable for Allied preparations for war. This timetable would kick in on Thursday the 22nd of May, two weeks after the treaty had been handed to brockdorff Ransau, and according to Foch, it would only take five days for the Allies to organise their divisions into an effective fighting force, which would drive the point home to the Germans. It is up to me to explain, then, if this resolute insistence on accepting the terms of the treaty was so dominant, why were the Germans allowed to procrastinate, and why were they even allowed to communicate counter-proposals to the Allies, thereby making their own suggestions and continuing their loud protest at the terms already agreed to? It was quite a sight. After four months of negotiations, the treaty reached by the Allies was meant to be final. Yet, within two weeks of handing that treaty to the Germans, it was evident that the Germans were not willing to accept it in its final form. What was more, as we will learn, some of the Allies and even some of the Big Three had begun to get cold feet as to the nature of some of these treaties' terms. That is quite the introduction, but this is quite the episode we have in store today for our 70th instalment. So I hope you're ready as I take you all to Tuesday the 20th of May, 1919. The sole meeting of the Council of Four on the 20th of May took place at 11am in the President's House, and from the beginning it was evident that the Allies intended to cram everything they could fit into the discussions. 
The main event of the evening was the discussion of the telegrams which the leader of the German delegation, Ulrich von brockdorf rantzau had sent therein. brockdorf rantzau had detailed how terribly affected Germany and Germans would be by the economic demands of the treaty. The Allied debate and reply is recorded in the appendix, and I have to emphasise again how incredibly satisfying and interesting it is to have on hand source material like this, to be able to access the actual words which were used rather than getting them second-hand from a book or other source, is invaluable. And if you're interested yourself, I would definitely recommend tracking down these foreign relations of the United States papers, which were effectively made possible thanks to Sir Morris Hankey's stenographic efforts. Before we examine what the Allies and Germans thought of one another, I thought it would be useful to examine three blips on our radar, which add additional weight to this narrative. First, Lloyd George records here for the first time the possibility that the Greek landing at Smyrna, which everyone had been so hot for, may not have been undertaken in the most wholesome way. According to a source from Constantinople, the Greeks on landing had been fired on by Turkish irregulars, and that firing had continued all day, the Greeks attacking and killing Turkish soldiers wherever they were seen. It was further alleged in the telegram that the wounded were killed and some of them thrown into the sea and that the Greek officers had made no attempt to restrain their men. Sir Maurice Hankey was asked to bring this to the attention of Venizelos, the Greek premier. Indeed, this was the beginning of a terrible process, which would drag on until autumn 1922, when the Greeks and several Christians were evacuated by boat as the Turks moved into Smyrna in the name of nationalism and a little bit of revenge on the side. It was a brutal, horrific time, poisoning the already poor relations between Greek and Turk, it also hinted that Venizelos might not have been telling the full truth when he had presented the case as a simple one of good, honest Greek against barbaric, savage Turk. Over the next few weeks, the Greek story would become more and more unflattering for Venizelos and more of an embarrassment for the Allies who had approved of his troops landing there. Second, we take a look at a fleeting moment of importance for a man who would later fulfil such a critical role in American foreign policy. When discussing the terms of Article 232, which established how much the Germans could be expected to pay in reparations, Wilson drew attention to the aspect of the article, which provided for the compensation of civilians. The proposal, Wilson said, has been made by Mr. Dulles, one of the American lawyers, whose thought had been for the United States citizens on board the Lusitania, who, unless some special provision was made, would get no reparation. This Mr. Dulles who Wilson presents merely as one of the American lawyers, was in fact the first mention in the minutes of John Foster Dulles, one of the most important U.S. Secretary of States in the 20th century. If you weren't aware, Dulles cut his teeth as a lawyer of some repute by working on the reparations articles of the Treaty of Versailles. This little note doesn't have any real impact on our narrative. I just thought it was interesting to see that the Treaty of Versailles was, for Dulles, as for so many of his peers, the first taste they had of applying the principles of international law which they had learned. In this case, Dulles had evidently been moved by the need to give compensation to the civilian victims of German attacks, an approach which Wilson described, according to the minutes, as sentimental. Dulles, of course, did not emerge out of nowhere to become Eisenhower's Secretary of State in 1953. By that point, he had built a phenomenal reputation as an international lawyer and expert at drafting 
monumentally important documents. Apparently he enjoyed his time drafting the Treaty of Versailles Reparation Articles so much that he also worked on the preamble of the United Nations a generation later, and in the meantime he helped devise different plans in the interwar years which would help Germany consolidate its reparations payments, as seen in the 1924 Dawes Plan. It is therefore important to view the Paris Peace Conference not as a vacuum, but as an arena where many of the brightest of the Allied's civil servants cut their teeth and gained priceless experience. For our third point, before we examine the exchanges between the German and Allied leaders, we're reminded that the Bolshevik threat was still making itself felt, and that as before, the Allies continued to misunderstand and misinterpret what was going on within the Russian Civil War. In an especially incredible prediction, based on the series of military setbacks suffered thanks to the exploits of the White Admiral Alexander Kolchak, who was moving out from Siberia, Clemenceau expressed the view that there was no doubt that the Bolsheviks were now going downhill. And the other two leaders weighed in as well, Wilson confessing that he did not feel the same chagrin I formerly felt at having no policy in regard to Russia. It has been impossible to have a policy hitherto. Lloyd George agreed with him, in the process revealing the explanation for involvement in the Russian Civil War in the first place. It had been an expedition to save the Eastern Front while at war with the Germans. The Allies had given little thought, at the time that they intervened in this conflict, to what consequences might come for Russia because of this down the line. There had been a lunatic revolution which certain persons, in whom little confidence was felt, were trying to squash, Lloyd George exclaimed, adding that the only reason why the Allies had encouraged them, in other words the white Russian commanders, was to prevent Germany from getting supplies. They were, however, now entitled to say, having supported us so far, you cannot leave us in the lurch. Wilson added that the Americans had only gone to Siberia to get the Czechs out and then the Czechs had refused to go. While the British Prime Minister noted that his government's object during the intervention in the Russian Civil War had been to reconstitute the Eastern Front. They had succeeded in doing this, though somewhat east of the line on which they had hoped to establish. Nevertheless, the reconstitution of the Front did prevent the Germans from getting supplies, with which they might have broken the blockade. The feeling in Great Britain was that it was impossible now to leave these peoples in the lurch. As if one even needed to be told, the Allies had not planned ahead when intervening in Russia. In every occasion where they acted in support of the white Russian generals, thereby prolonging the Russian Civil War, they had done so throughout 1918 to prevent Germany taking advantage of the Russian collapse. Thus we are reminded once again how interconnected the largely forgotten Allied interventions in the Russian Civil War are with the mission of defeating the Germans in the Great War. Aside from defeating Germany and preventing the Russian lands from giving the Germans some advantage, the Allies evidently now had no long-term plans either for saving Russia or for defeating the Bolsheviks. Now that they had boots on the ground, though, and the Russian Civil War had entered its terminal phase, those commanders whom the Allies had supported were asking the Big Three to reimagine their commitment to Russia and not to leave now when the situation there was so acute. As we know, of course... Contrary to what Clemenceau claimed, it was not the Bolshevik but the white Russian cause that was going downhill. Perhaps if the Allies had intervened in Russia with the sole intention of stopping Bolshevism rather than stopping the Germans benefiting from Bolshevism, matters would have taken a different course. Alas, 
the Allied interventions in Russia were inseparably bound up with the war against Germany, and now that the war with Germany was virtually over, these Allied soldiers on Russian soil were at a loss at what to do next. With these three distraction points out of the way, it's now time to turn our attention to the main event of the day's meeting, that being the discussion of the exchanges between the German and Allied delegations. After communicating what was meant to be the final treaty terms, the Allies certainly had hoped for the Germans to cooperate and accept them. Yet Germany's insistent protests as to the economic terms and the consequences of the peace suggested that, in fact, she would not go quietly or cooperatively. While it might have made the Allies balk to see Germany defy her orders, considering the reaction against the terms which the Allied and upper echelons of the governments of the Big Three had, it can't have been too surprising that the Germans also cried foul. For us, it is a useful stepping stone towards the stark effort the Germans made to renegotiate the entire treaty at the end of May with their counter-proposals. First, though, Ulrich von Brockdorf-Ranzau would address the economic terms. Brockdorf-Ranzau focused on the removal of Germany's merchant fleet, the reduction of her industry, and the occupation of German food-producing regions in the east by new states. This, combined with the material contributions in coal, which Germany would be obliged to make under the reparation terms, would leave Germany prostrate and starving. And Brockdorf-Ranzau concluded with some gusto that the putting into execution of the conditions of peace would, therefore, logically bring about the loss of several millions of persons in Germany. The catastrophe would not be long in coming about, seeing that the health of the population has been broken down during the war by the blockade, and during the armistice by the aggravation of the blockade of famine. No help, however important, or over however long a period it might be distributed, would prevent these deaths en masse. Peace would impose upon Germany numberless human sacrifices that the war of four years and a half did not demand of her. We do not know, and indeed we doubt, whether the delegates of the Allied and Associated Powers realise the inevitable consequences which will take place if Germany, an industrial state, very thickly populated, closely bound up with the economic systems of the world, and reduced to the obligations to import enormous quantities of raw materials and foodstuffs, suddenly finds herself pushed back in the phase of her development which would correspond to her economic condition and the numbers of her population as they were half a century ago. Those who will sign this treaty will sign the death sentence of many millions of German men, women and children. Were the Allies about to sign the death sentence of millions of German men, women and children though, or was Brockdorf Ranzau exaggerating for effect? Understandably, the Allies believed it was the latter case. While Germany would face severe disruption and challenges, so would all of the nations of Europe, as they had emerged from the most destructive war in history, and all the usual normality of interstate relations had been dislocated, including those relations which guaranteed the easy delivery of foodstuffs to different states. This was a problem which all states, regardless of their role in the war, had to face. Yet as the Allied reply to this notes, the story wasn't all bad for Germany. In the framing of the Treaty of Peace, the Allied reply began, there has been no intention on the part of the Allied and associated governments to destroy Germany's economic life. On the contrary, the necessity for a return to more normal economic conditions has been borne consistently in mind. For example, the Reparations Commission is, in various clauses, charged with specific instructions to this end. The wholesale sacrifice of life and health, and the wanton devastation of territory and the destruction of wealth which have marked this war, are bound for many years to impose enormous burdens on the nations of the world. 
these burdens are not created or aggravated by the conditions of peace, nor could any conditions be drafted which would remove them. The treaty certainly does not impose an excessive share of these burdens on Germany. Germany will, moreover, find new resources by reason of the fact that millions of her citizens, who up to now had been employed in military affairs or in preparation for war, can now turn their whole activities to works of peace. In short, the Allies insisted that Germany would benefit from a switch in focus away from war production and towards domestic production. After maintaining a war economy for over four years and an industrial sector geared towards the possibility of war towards that, it was no longer necessary to plan for that eventuality, and so German industry could be directed towards other means, which would in the end lead to a repairing of the German country and the rescue of her citizens. Otherwise, you be quiet, Germany, since the treaty terms aren't as bad as you think. This was far from the last exchange, or even the first exchange between the Allies, as notes continued to flutter between the German representatives at Paris and Allied representatives in Berlin and Paris. Connections made long ago between different statesmen also played a role, and personal channels for diplomacy were made full use of. Still, this exchange between the head of the German delegation and the Allied governments is significant, because of the suggestion which was later to become clear, that being, the Germans were not going to accept any of the treaty's terms without a fight. In some instances, they insisted they would not accept the terms at all. The same day that the Allies were poring over these notes, Ulrich von Brockdorf-Ranzau communicated arguably his most important one, but also the least exciting. It was a message requesting that the original deadline of a fortnight be extended, as Germany intended to present notes on a variety of topics for the Allies to read, topics which included Alsace-Lorraine, reparations and the East. This letter was then read on the morning meeting of the Council of Four on the 21st of May at 11am. Its core message read, the problems hereby involved being in part of a very complicated nature, and it having been necessary to discuss them extensively with the experts in Versailles, as well as with those in Berlin, it will not be possible to dispose of them within the time limit of 14 days notified by Your Excellency on the 7th of May, although the delegation will take pains to transmit as many notes as possible within the limit. Having regard to this, I beg, in the name of the German Peace Delegation, to move that the contents of the intended notes be regarded as having already been made the subject of discussion in writing, and that the requisite time be granted for us for a more detailed exposition. Clemenceau asked that a French official meet with the Germans and ask exactly how long they believed they would need. This official would then return later in the day on the 21st and fill the Allies in. The big three spent most of the meeting essentially debating their spheres of influence in the Middle East then and Lloyd George and Clemenceau became particularly animated over the futures of Syria, Mesopotamia and Palestine. In addition, since Orlando was at this point absent, the Big Three attempted to discuss Italy's claims and the potential resolution of the Fiume situation. The solution agreed upon in the end at this point was for Fiume to be held by the League of Nations until the Italians constructed a port for Yugoslavia, at which point Fiume would be handed over to Italy. Italy would also renounce its claims on the Dalmatian coast. Some details on mandates were also given in the appendix of the morning meeting of the 21st of May. Here it was decided that Armenia, Constantinople and Anatolia, as in the whole of Turkey, would be placed under an American mandate, but that if these mandates were not accepted, Anatolia would revert to the sovereignty of the Turkish Sultan. Smyrna and its surrounds would be annexed into Greece, Mesopotamia and Palestine would go to Britain, and Syria to France, 
pending the outcome of a commission which was en route to the region. Arabia would remain independent, and the holy sites would retain their independence and freedom of access. When the Allies reconvened in the afternoon of the 21st of May, they immediately set to work assessing the report of that French official which Clemenceau had sent to meet with the Germans. This official, named as Colonel Henri, reported that he had asked Brockdorf Ransau's secretary how long the German delegation believed they would need, and this secretary had said a fortnight. Yet Colonel Henri was told not to make this request official as of yet, because the German government back home might not approve. Further, this German secretary asked Colonel Henri for more printer services and a carriage to transport portions of the German archives for the purpose of the counter-proposals and notes which they planned to write, Henri believed. This was very far from the compliant picture of the Germans which the Allies had hoped for. Now there was the question of what to do. Should they grant the Germans another two weeks when two had been granted already? Clemenceau piped up with some news he had heard from a few different individuals who believed that the Germans were planning to resist the Allied demands by force of arms. Wilson noted that It was perhaps a safe conclusion to draw that the Germans did not mean to sign in the present circumstances. This factor ought perhaps to enter into the question of an extension of the time, though in such a big treaty, I think the demand for an extension not unreasonable. Lloyd George agreed that he thought it reasonable to grant an extension as well. Surprisingly enough, Clemenceau also agreed, but he wouldn't give a fortnight's extension. Wilson then suggested ten days, and Lloyd George then drew a red line, urging the extension should not be beyond the following Wednesday evening, in other words, the 28th of May. Lloyd George said that he would allow them to have a printing train, since it would speed up the production of the document. Sanino, standing in for Orlando, made the good point that the time should depend upon whether this was to be a final extension or not for the Germans. Clemenceau raised the question as to whether any final date should be intertwined with advertising the expiry of the armistice, since this would add additional pressure. Wilson thought this was a bad idea, though, because it was impossible to tell how long they would require to examine the elaborate counter-proposal which the Germans were probably submitting, and that, therefore, all that could be done at present was to fix a date for the extension. Clemenceau warned that after a short extension, the Germans would probably ask for another. Lloyd George insisted that the longer extension of 15 days, as suggested, was too great an extension. Wilson considered that, as no further extension would be granted, a liberal allowance was now desirable. Sinino suggested until the end of the month, perhaps the 31st of May, a Friday, but Lloyd George insisted that this was also too long. It was predictable that the Germans had already made up their minds, the Prime Minister said adding that he would not give them more than a week. According to the minutes, the Allies ultimately determined to delay the German answer until the 29th of May, or the following Thursday at the latest. I beg to inform your excellency that the Allied and Associated Powers are willing to grant an extension until Thursday, the 29th of May, the Allied note to Ulrich von brockdorf rantzau read. Just like that, the Allies had prolonged the conclusion of the peace conference. Not only that, but those military plans which had been set in place through liaising with Foch were now irrelevant, since Allied divisions were plainly not going to begin mobilising against the Germans on the 22nd. A new window would have to be devised then, and a new plan put in place should the Germans fail to accept the terms within the allotted time, or should they ask for an extension once more.
Later in the afternoon, when the Allies met again, German reactions to the earlier notes were again discussed. Wilson expressed his view that it would be beneficial for the Allied and German financial experts to meet together, but Clemenceau argued that this would weaken the resolve and standing of the Allies. Wilson argued it would not, and that it would instead demonstrate that the Allied governments were willing to do virtually anything to ensure that the Germans accepted the terms. Wilson noted that his object was to demonstrate to Europe that nothing had been left undone which might have induced the Germans to have signed. If they did not sign, it would involve sending troops into the heart of Germany and their retention there for a long period. Germany could not pay the costs of this occupation, which would pile up the expenses to people who were already protesting against the burden of occupation. People would ask if there was anything left undone which might have averted this. There would be no loss of dignity by carrying out this plan. The experts of the Allied and Associated Powers would merely explain the meaning of some parts of the Treaty of Peace, which, in my view, the Germans had failed to understand. If our experts could show that no heavier burden had been laid on the German people than justice required, it might make it easier for the German delegates to explain to their own people. But Clemenceau repeated that it would just give Germany more advantages, adding that moving Allied divisions would have the greatest effect on German morale. Just as the Allied populations were anxiously awaiting news of the German signing, Clemenceau said, so too were the German people looking for justification which would explain the German government signing. The threat of military action on the part of the Allies could serve as the justification as the explanation for the Germans signing what might have appeared like an unacceptable treaty. Lloyd George interjected next, opining that rather than the use of force, some concession could be given which might induce the Germans to sign. As to what concession might be given, Lloyd George declared unhelpfully that he had nothing particular in mind, but there might be some concession which did not matter very much, which could be made. These were two very different approaches to making the Germans sign, essentially good cop versus bad cop. Lloyd George added that it would be better to await the German reply and keep an open mind on the subject. And Clemenceau agreed with this. Wilson insisted that their earlier reply provided no ray of hope to the Germans, and that it merely said that the treaty was right and nothing more. This was the proper course to follow, Wilson said. The Germans should be shown that, according to Article 232, their contributions under reparations would not be as bad in actuality as they might have feared. Clemenceau remarked that there was no need to do the Germans this favour, and that the Germans might interpret it as begging and therefore weakness. But the prophetic statement of the day award went to the American president who noted that he was afraid ten years hence we should find that nothing had been got out of the Treaty of Peace and this would cause a reaction in Germany's favour. After having examined the reparations issue in episode 58, we know that, indeed, the Allies got roughly 20 billion marks from the Germans in the end, rather than any larger sum which they may have been expecting. Despite this, in addition, Wilson was correct to fear that this would cause a reaction in Germany's favour, as the wheels were already turning towards this result. Later that afternoon on the 22nd of May, it was confirmed that Austria would be subjected to the same exact reparation clauses as the Germans. The draft resolution for the Austrian treaty read, The Allied and Associated Governments affirm, and Austria accepts, the responsibility of Austria and her allies for causing all the loss and damage to which the Allied and Associated Governments and their nationals have been subjected as a consequence of the war imposed upon them by the aggression of Austria and her allies. 
The following article expressed the view that Austria's resources were finite and she couldn't be expected to pay for everything. These two articles in the Austrian Treaty were, in short, the Austrian versions of Articles 231 and 232, and locating them in the minutes here provides undeniable proof that the Central Powers were all treated the same way in this regard. There was no singular targeting of Germany when it came to reparations or the so-called War Guilt Clause. If Germany was guilty, then so too was Austria, Hungary, Bulgaria, and anyone else who had these articles adapted for their country. The key difference, of course, was in how the affected government reacted to these articles. The Austrians were mostly compliant, but in short order, the Germans treated the whole issue as a point of honour, and they were greatly aided in this quest, of course, by the faux pas of the Allies and the loud condemnations of men like John Maynard Keynes. The Council of Four meeting on the afternoon of the 23rd of May dove straight into recent news from Germany. Lloyd George reported that according to information he had received from Foch, the Germans would not sign a peace from Germany of violence and were preparing a new war, especially against the Poles, that negotiations had been carried on with the Soviets with satisfactory results and that German non-commissioned officers who had volunteered to help the Bolsheviks would be collected at Konigsberg. Lloyd George also read a telegram he had received from Cologne, where the British representative had had an interview with the Burgomaster, just returned from Berlin. The trend of this information was that the German government would refuse to sign the terms, but that after the advance, the hopelessness of the situation would be realised, and peace would be signed under protest. This was all that was said on the German situation for now. It was indicated that the following day on the 24th of May, the Allies would craft their reply to Ulrich von brockdorff rantzows previous telegrams. The rest of the meeting was taken up with some very interesting side notes. First, there was the situation in Italy, which Clemenceau noted had become increasingly anti-French in tone, with expressions of bitter hostility directed towards the French soldiers who remained in the country. Clemenceau said that he had asked the French war office if they could not be withdrawn to avoid any incidents, and that he had received the reply that Milan was the base of the French troops in Italy, and if the base was withdrawn, the whole of France's troops must be withdrawn also. Clemenceau said that he did not like to do this without consulting Monsieur Orlando. Clemenceau added that he felt it was dangerous to withdraw because it would indicate a separation between France and Italy. On the other hand, though, Clemenceau anticipated that if he did not withdraw, there was the risk of a very serious incident, and that, predictably enough, he could not take the responsibility of risking such trouble. Then, as if to make Orlando feel bad about the whole thing, Clemenceau noted the expressions of solidarity for Italy, which were being displayed today in the French Chamber and Senate to celebrate the fourth anniversary of Italy's entry into the war. This had the full approval and support of the French government, Clemenceau said. It was at this very moment that the insults to French officers were taking place. And Clemenceau then added, I do not accuse the Italian government, as I know that Monsieur Orlando had no part in the matter. How would Orlando respond to these sly digs and expressions of innocence on Clemenceau's part by pointing to the bare facts of the matter that Italy's severe problems had not gone away with the passage of time or with the return of Orlando to Paris? Orlando then explained the current situation in his country for the umpteenth time. There were signs of exasperation, partly due to war weariness and partly to anxiety created by the fact that the questions most pressing to Italy 
had not yet been settled, and the people could see no way out. Hence, there was a certain mania that Italy was being persecuted. The government, of course, had nothing to do with these movements, which had been latterly turned against the Italian government itself. This was the reason of my recent journey to meet my colleagues. On this occasion, I had been told that the situation within the last few days was somewhat better, and that there was a certain calm. I had, at Monsieur Clemenceau's request, made inquiries about the alleged incident at Genoa, and been told by the prefect that there was nothing in the allegation. When Clemenceau insisted that this was because the information had been kept from Orlando deliberately, Orlando committed to launch another inquiry into the matter. The conversation then turned to Russia, but we'll take up that Russian cross in its own dedicated episode. Something which I really want to examine before going any further is the record of an interview provided by Paul Manteau, the official translator for the Council of Four, and Dr. Georg Heim, designated leader of Bavaria's separatist movement. Previously in the Council of Four meeting, it was noted that there was a perception in Germany that the country was split between a socialist north and a Catholic centrist south, and that to save the country from Bolshevism's clutches, the country could potentially be split between north and south confederations. The interview with Dr. Heim provided the evidence for this idea, and due to some startling, darkly prophetic revelations which Dr. Heim presented, it is worth examining the primary source of that interview, which the appendix of the minutes of the 23rd of May provide. Georg Heim was a Bavarian separatist. He was a co-founder of the Bavarian People's Party, and he was a leader of the Catholic peasant movement in Bavaria before the war. His blunt exposition of the state of Germany by spring 1919, and the proposed solution to the country's woes, deserve mention, largely because I haven't seen them recorded in any other secondary source. During the course of his interview with Paul Manteau, Dr. Georg Heim said, You should know also that socialism is much further developed and more dangerous in North Germany than in South or West Germany. In consequence, the united Germany which the Entente is making will be extremely socialistic. It will be so all the more readily since the situation at Berlin, from which I have just come, is of this sort. The people are apathetic, indifferent to everything, with no moral ideas. Their morale is dead. Their leaders have been displaced. They are so divided at the top that they are incapable of pursuing a fixed policy. The life of Berlin is scandalous. 200 clubs are open every night. At each of them, millions are staked. In spite of the scarcity of provisions, the gamblers are able to enjoy suppers free of cost, as in peacetime. Can you want such a Germany to survive? If such a peace is signed as had been proposed, the people will accept it with complete indifference because of their apathy, and also because everyone considers that the economic and financial clauses are illusory. Even if the troops of the Entente advance, there will be no feeling. You wish to visit us, they will say? Then come ahead. These sentiments were significant enough on their own. This idea that morale was said to be low in Germany, or dead, as Dr. Heim claimed, and that in response to the long-threatened Allied advance into Germany, the response would simply be, you wish to visit us, then come ahead. So what was the solution? Well, in Dr. Heim's mind, it was to listen to the separatist feelings throughout Germany, as Clemenceau had originally hoped to do, and to break Germany down into smaller states. But was it truly possible to reverse the process of German unification from 1871? Clemenceau definitely wanted to, as would have many of his countrymen, so it is perhaps a bit convenient that Dr. Heim so perfectly captured his pipe dream when he exclaimed, The states with separatist tendencies are 
Hanover to the Weser, Bremen, Oldenburg, Westphalia, Württemberg, Baden, Hesse, Nassau, the Rhine province, Bavaria. Add to them German Austria, and you will have a group of states which I call the Confederation of the Rhine and Danube, with a population of 30 million, almost equal to that of North Germany, which would have 36 million. North Germany, or in other words, Prussia, would be severely restricted by this arrangement, but according to the minutes of the interview, Paul Manteau objected to this idea because it would add Austria into the mix, and there could be no guarantee that these two Germanys wouldn't reunite at some point in the future, presenting an impossible challenge for France in the process. In return, Dr. Heim promised this southern German confederacy would be placed under an allied protectorate, and they would have his word that the two Germanys would remain separated. And Heim had a personal, or spiritual, interest for ensuring that they did remain separate. It was the best way to protect the position of Catholicism, which would be in jeopardy should the Allies proceed as planned. I am only speaking from the religious point of view because I am alone with you. In Germany I would be stopped at the first word, Heim said, before continuing. So the peace you want to make will strengthen Protestantism in Germany, and, I have just said, socialism as well. I repeat again that if such a peace is signed, the people will remain calm because they have become apathetic, but Bolshevist ideas will gain rapidly. Already in the month of April, we have seen an increase of 400,000 unemployed. People will not tell you so, but it is a simple fact. As for the reparations which you hope for, they will be illusory. The dangers of unemployment, the shortage of clothing, the means by which reparations could be sent to the Allies and Dr. Heim's new vision, all of these were discussed. Dr. Heim even elaborated on plans for a federation in the East, containing all of the old states once under the Habsburg Dominion. The conversation quickly becomes uncomfortable, though. When asked about the actual situation in Bavaria at that moment, Heim conceded that Prussian soldiers, mostly Freikorps volunteers, had restored order in the country. Was not the Bavarian Revolution provoked by other causes? Paul Manteau asked, to which Dr. Heim gave the darkly prophetic reply. In Bavaria, as in Hungary, and as in Russia, there were the Eastern Jews who prepared the revolution. You know that the Eastern Jews, persecuted for centuries, have the spirits of rebels. They are the ones who caused all the trouble with us. Already, at this early stage in 1919, Dr. Heim was establishing the ideological and racial grounds for division, which would later define Bavaria and Munich as the ideal birthplace for the Nazi movement. It is fair to ask how far-reaching Dr. Heim's interpretation of this Soviet-Bavarian-Jewish revolution went. Was it possible that other Bavarians or other Germans believed that the Jews were predominantly to blame? Was it possible that, as Bavaria swung further to the right in the interwar years, these ideas crystallised in the determination to remove Jews from Bavarian society, in the fear that they might strike in tandem with Russian Bolsheviks once again? A great deal could be made out of what Dr. Heim had said, but the minutes record that Paul Manteau did not challenge this interpretation, which suggests that he may have believed it to be true. Either way, this picture of Bavaria confirmed Clemenceau's pipe dream for reimagining Germany, but it also highlighted the very dark undertones of extremism and anti-Semitism which were already taking root. The next day on the 24th of May, the Allies were preoccupied with the question of what to do about Russia, 
but they did manage to devote enough time to send their first significant response to Ulrich von Brockdorf Ranzo, who in his turn had sent them two separate telegrams on the 13th and 16th of May regarding the peace terms and the Tsar Valley, respectively. I beg to acknowledge receipt of your letter of May 13th, 1919, and also further your letter of May 16th, as these two communications concern the same subject, it will be convenient that I should answer them in one letter. This was how the Allied response began, and it continued with a direct rebuke to Brockdorf Ransau's description in said earlier letters of treatment of Germans under the peace terms. With regard to the more general observations contained in your first letter, I must emphatically deny on behalf of the Allied and Associated Governments the suggestion contained in it that German territories are by the Treaty of Peace made the subject of bargains between one sovereignty and another, as though they were mere chattels or pawns in a game. In fact, the wishes of the population of all the territories in question will be consulted, and the procedure followed in such consultation has been carefully settled with special regard to local conditions. The issue of the Tsar Valley and its coal mines were also discussed, and it was explained that France needed the coal from these regions, since its own coal-producing centres in the northeast had been devastated by German soldiers. Furthermore, regarding the populations in the Tsar region, the Allied reply read, As regard the inhabitants of the Tsar Basin, the domination, which is termed odious in your letter, is the administration of the League of Nations. They are assured of the maintenance of all their present liberties, and in addition, there are guaranteed to them in financial and social matters a number of special advantages. Moreover, definite provisions is made, after a period of 15 years, for a plebiscite which will enable this population, which is of so complex a character, to determine the final form of government of the territory of which it lives, in full freedom and not necessarily to the advantage either of France or of Germany. It was highly unlikely that Ulrich von Brockdorf Ranzau would accept these terms, or that he believed they were as fair as the Allies tried to claim. Nonetheless, by the afternoon of the 24th of May, the clock was ticking down. The Germans would only have a few days to signal their acceptance of the peace terms. The deadline had been delayed once, and the Allied intervention into Germany to force the issue had been delayed with it. Surely, the patience of the Allies could only be tested for so long. Either way, it was certain that the final week of May 1919 was to be a tense time, as both sides waited to see what the other would do next. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. 
quince.com slash style. 